turn with me to chapter 3, to the genealogy of Jesus. As we do in our church, we do expository preaching. We don't get to pick the text each Sunday. The text is picked for us as we follow the inspired writer, Dr. Luke, as being carried along by the Holy Spirit, Second Peter tells us. But I will tell you this morning as we open up to chapter 3, to turn to the genealogy, it is important for me and I hope for you to remember what Paul wrote to 2 Timothy, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. That the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That includes the genealogy. <laughs> We've been studying this orderly account by Dr. Luke to this Roman a nobleman named Theophilus. We've witnessed some very detailed information concerning the announcement and birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to chapter 3, and we, that's where we've been so far. And now what I wanted to put up there for you is kind of to show how Luke has been showing us the announcement, the birth. He sees, he's done his homework. Interviewing eyewitnesses of what took place with the announcement, with the angel Gabriel to, to Zechariah to, to Mary, and the announcement of both Jesus and John the Baptist, moving on to their actual birth. We have that as well in chapter 2. And then transitioning to the preparation of Jesus' earthly ministry. And now we're in the preparation stage. We see this, what Luke is bringing us through uh, this wonderful account of the life of Jesus. So, loose, this is a very loose um, outline, but we're going to look at the context of sonship, uh, the covenant of Adam, and then we'll go to communion uh, as we gather together around the communion table. So, that's kind of where we're headed this morning. So, let, let me back up a little. So you have to see the context of the genealogies, I think is most important. Remember, the transition from the announcement and birth to the preparation happened, I believe, in the temple when Jesus was 12 years old. You remember that story? Uh, he was in the temple. He was during the Feast of Passover. Mary and Joseph had brought him there. It was right before his bar mitzvah, turning 13, uh, where he could become a, a member of the council of the, of the synagogue. He's, he's there. They leave him there. They're on a journey. They're a day into it. They find that Jesus isn't there. So they head on back the next day. And they find him in the temple on the third day, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And it says in chapter 2, verse 47, that everyone who was there was amazed at Jesus, at his understanding, his, his go back and forth with these theologians of the day, his amazing, uh, um, amazed at Jesus' understanding and his answers, chapter 2, verse 47. It became clear to us at that point uh, that Jesus had a good grasp of his identity because in chapter 2, verse 49, after his mother Mary finds Jesus and Joseph finds Jesus in the temple, Jesus tells them, why are you looking for me? Basically, you know, don't you know I must be about my, what, father's house? Even though Joseph, his stepdad, is there, he said, I'm in the temple, I'm, I'm studying the word, I'm, I'm about my father's business. And he was signaling to the, to the, to the Jewish people of that day, to Mary and Joseph, and, and to all those that were there, including us, the readers today, of this unique relationship between God the Son and God the Father. We saw earlier in chapter 1 that when the angel came to Mary, the angel said he would be called Son of the Most High. 
Chapter 1, verse 32. In chapter 1, verse 35, the child to be born will be called the Holy One, the Son of God. From there, Luke tells us about the baptism of John after the trip to Jerusalem. He's the baptism of John and the baptism of Jesus in chapter 3. That John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. And the question was, and we should always ask this question, I think it's important. Why did the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, the one who had no sin, had no need to repent, be baptized? That would be Jesus. Matthew helps us. We saw that two weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 11. When Jesus came from Galilee uh, to the Jordan to be baptized by John, John says, whoa, 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 whoa. I need to be baptized by you. I'm the sinner who needs to repent, not you. Why do you come to me? And Jesus says to him, let it be so now, at this moment, at this day, at this time, for thus it is filling for us to fulfill all righteousness. At that point, John did what John should do and said, yes, sir, and baptized Jesus. John consenting to baptize Jesus not only showed a shift of ministry, uh, passing the batons, we said, from the call to repent to Jesus' call to repent and to follow him, but also an act of solidarity to fulfill all that God required in order for Jesus to die as our sin offering, dying in our place. In order for him to purchase our righteousness, he had to identify with us as sinners, yet without sin. I said two weeks ago that the sinless Jesus, who did not need the baptism of repentance, associated himself with us sinners and placed himself among the guilty, not for his own salvation, but for ours. Not for his guilt, but ours. Not because he feared the wrath of God to come, but to save us from it. And immediately after Jesus was baptized, he comes out of the water praying. The Bible says that the heavens opened up and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. It wasn't a dove, no matter what you see. It was like a dove. And the, this marks the preparation point for Jesus' ministry. A ministry that began, uh, begins with a divine endorsement, as the Father speaks, and divine empowerment. If you read in the book of Acts, I think at least two or three places, while there's Peter's preaching in one place in chapter 10, he's, he's preaching, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In other words, this, 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 this call of ministry, this endorsement from heaven, this empowerment, uh, just marks Jesus' public ministry. We see the triune God. We see God the Father speaking from heaven, announcing this benediction upon his Son. We see God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, being baptized, praying as he comes up out of the water. And God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descending from heaven on the Son in the form of a dove. Now we shouldn't lose sight that Jesus uh, exhibited his own authority, his own power. It was a work of the triune God all throughout Acts, all throughout Luke. We see Jesus also commanding by his own authority. We see the work, though, of this triune God. As God speaks, the Spirit comes, and Jesus is baptized. But then, what happened? It says in chapter 3, verse 22, that the heavens opened, and a voice said, You are what? My beloved Son. My beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So stop right here for a minute. I want you to see something that's going on here 
It's very important as we get into the genealogy of Jesus, and that's the context of this sonship. Now, the genealogy of Jesus in two places in the New Testament, you probably know this already, Matthew and Luke, okay? There's some differences, we'll get to that in a minute, but Matthew opens up with the genealogy, chapter 1, verse 1, the genealogy of Jesus. Luke drops it in chapter 3, in the preparation and the call of Jesus' ministry. And I have to ask the question, why would, not, why would Luke not do that from the very beginning like Matthew did? Well, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and he comes right out of the gate, and he wants to show that Jesus is the king. He's the covenantal promise that was made to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, and the king David, who he gave a covenantal promise to reign and rule over an eternal kingdom. That's why Matthew opens up the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he gets into the genealogy. And interesting, Matthew starts from, uh, with Abraham's birth and brings us to the present with Jesus. So he starts with Abraham and he works with Jesus. Right? Name, naming the past to the present. Luke's genealogy is the other way around, from the present to the past. Luke, as we've been saying, wants to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah for all people. That's why this series is called Mission to the World. Luke begins with the birth of Jesus and then traces the genealogy, not ending with Abraham, not ending with, with David, but with Adam. Verse 38 of chapter 3 says the Son of God, Adam the Son of God. Tracing the genealogy uh, past Abraham, the father of the Jews, to all the nation is showing the, the world that Jesus is the Messiah of all people. It's this universal scope that God has sent his son to redeem all of humanity. It foreshadows the universal scope. And the unique relationship, and I'm going to tie this together, and I want you to see this, it's very important. The unique relationship between God the Father and God the Son, what goes back from the angel, it began to be revealed in the temple when he was 12, becomes more clear at the, genea- uh, excuse me, at the baptism, becomes more clear at the genealogy. Begins, it begins with God the Son, God the Father. You see that in verse 20, 23, Jesus, God the Son, and then the Son of Adam, the Son of God. And you see what, what, what he's doing here. He's showing us this sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when Jesus gets into the temptation, which we'll get next week, and is driven out into the wilderness, the first thing Satan says is, if you're the son of God, if you really are the son of God, command the stone to become bread. You see what Luke is trying to show us? Unlike the first son of God, Adam, who was tempted by Satan and failed, Jesus, the son of God, overcomes and has victory over Satan, evil, and temptation. When I say the first, I don't mean eternal. I'm talking about taking on humanity. Adam came before the incarnation. That's what I mean, okay? Jesus, of course, never had a beginning or an end. He's eternal. But he became man in a particular day and a particular time. So Luke puts this genealogy right here because he wants everyone to know not only this unique relationship between the son and the father, but that Jesus is the second Adam, the true and better son of God. That's what the whole thing is wrapped around in. 
Jesus said in chapter 2, verse 49, again, do you not know I need to be about my father's house? Chapter, Luke chapter 3, verse 22, you're my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In fact, that verse in verse 22, that, that uh, chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, the main verb has everything to do with the father speaking. That's what Luke wants to point us to. Audible voice, speaking from heaven. He wants everyone to know that Jesus Christ is the eternal son. It doesn't mean that all of a sudden God adopted him at baptism, right? Jesus always existed. But he's declaring, as as the heavens were opened up, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one whom I love. Remember we said there has to be a category when it comes to to the things of God that, that, that stand as a mystery. I can't explain it completely, but what we see here in this text very clearly is that the eternal relationship, the Son and the Father, we see right here that God is loving, declaring his love and his, his approval of the Son. God who knows, who, who only loves perfect, his affection has no imperfection is loving the Son. And the Son in this instant, in this baptism, is being loved by the Father, who is, who is perfectly worthy to be have perfectly loved. There can be no more perfect love than the Father's love for His beloved Son within the Trinity. And we see this strong affirmation of the deity of Christ being fully divine and being the eternal Son, but also fully human. So this whole sonship motif that began with the angel's announcement uh, of, of this, 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 this birth of this baby is driving the preparation, driving the ministry and the preparation and the, the, the time which Jesus will be launched into ministry. It's driving the whole thing. The Son of God, the Son, the Son, the Son, the Son. That's why Dr. Luke drops it right here, the genealogy here at this point. Not at the beginning. He wants to establish through Jesus' genealogy the unique relationship, not only between God the Father and God the Son, but Jesus' unique relationship to the first Adam. It's very important. The true and better Adam. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Jesus did what Adam failed to do, and therefore, Jesus alone can offer himself as a a perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God who could take away the sins of the world. Now, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. It's up there on the screen, but at least you know where the the address is if you open up your own Bible. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We see this unique relationship. We see this connection with Adam, and then we'll see even more so here in Romans chapter 5 and then in Genesis. All right? Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that? Adam. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam, that's when the world was created, to Moses, that's when the law was given. Death was still a reality. The consequence of sin and the breaking of God's law is still a reality, it's still death. Even over those who were sinning was not like the transgressions of Adam's who was a type of the one who was to come. That's Jesus, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, talking about Adam, and the gift being Christ. For if many died through one man's trespass, 
much more, much more, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And, verse 16, the free gift is not like the results of that one man's sin. It's Adam. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Following me? But the free gift following many transgressions, trespasses, brought what? Justification. You see what he's saying? The, the Bible teaches that Adam the, was the first human being created by a special act of God from the dust of the ground. And through Adam's disobedience, death entered the world, affecting everyone. In contrast, life comes through the obedience of the second and last Adam, Jesus Christ. Very important you see that doctrinal truth. We'll see it again in 1 Corinthians. Thus it is written, Paul says, the first Adam became a living being. Genesis 1 and 3. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, Jesus. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. Again, we're not talking about eternality. We're talking about who was born. Adam came and then the incarnation. The first man was from the dust, Adam, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. He came down from glory. As was the man of dust, so also those who are of the dust, as is the man of heaven, and so also those who are of heaven. Okay? Contrasting between Adam and Jesus. Just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we were all born into this world, those who have been saved shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay? So to regain paradise, follow with me, family, for his people, Jesus had to become the second Adam. That is, he had to come in our likeness so that he could obey God perfectly and succeed where Adam failed as our representative. So in one sense, Adam is the son of God. That's why we see it in Luke's genealogy. But Jesus, the eternal son, in the supernatural birth, by the power and overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, breaks the pattern of natural birth, because since Adam, everyone is born with a belly button. But Adam, the Holy Spirit breaks the pattern as it overshadows Mary and, and, and breaks that normal way in which babies are born because it's supernatural and places Jesus as the eternal son, as the holy head of a new humanity. Okay? We go way back to Genesis 1. And we see in Genesis 1 that God created man and women in the Imago Dei, in his image and in his likeness. In chapter 2, he expounds on that. Moses expounds on that, where he's told that the Lord created man where? From the dust of the ground. Paul says the man of dust. As we keep reading Genesis, we see in chapters 1 through 3 that God had entered into a covenant with Adam. Okay? Well, many times you may have heard it called the covenant of works or the covenant of creation. When we say the covenant works, it doesn't mean that Adam had to work his way to God. God already created him. There was intimacy, there was fellowship, there was communion in the garden. But because he was created by God, Adam is now obligated by his very existence to obey the one in whom he, who created him. And the covenant works shows that God freely enters into this covenant with Adam, promising him life and the condition of perfect obedience. We see that in Genesis and though some may say, well, the, the term covenant is not used, everything in chapters 1 through 3 in Genesis speaks about covenant. There are covenant members involved, there are stipulations involved, there's rewards and curses involved. Hosea will speak to the northern kingdom in chapter 6 and call the covenant 
that Adam made with that God made with Adam in Genesis clearly a covenant. But Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, you know the story, family. Adam's given a test. He's commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest he die. And God was testing Adam for his love and his devotion to God, testing him. Does, does he trust God? Does he trust God's provision? Does he trust God's goodness? And Adam was required to be obedient in every way. In the midst of this covenant, in all covenants, there's this idea of, of obedience and love. They go, they go hand in hand. Was, was he going to love God? Was he going to obey God? Love and obedience go hand in hand. If Adam passed the probationary test, he would have life. But you know the story, the serpent comes along, which is the devil, and he comes and he tempts Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from the tree of, uh, that's in the garden? Of, more of a mockery than a question? God, is God really that good? Is, is God keeping you from something? Has God really provided for you? Is he really a good God? And seeing that the fruit was what? Beautiful, Eve took the fruit. Gave her to her husband who she couldn't find for a couple of days. Not true. He was standing right there, guys. Who was right with her. Failure to step up. Failure to provide. Failure to protect. Failure to, to uh, uh, watch over and care for and love Eve. And they both fell into rebellion. We'll get into more of that next week as we talk about the second Adam, Jesus, and the serpent who will do the testing, not of Adam this time, but of the second Adam in the wilderness. And then sin enters the world. All of a sudden, they felt shame. They felt, uh, uh, they knew their guilt. They knew they were naked. Sin enters the world. Everything changes. God does not kill him on the spot, although he, he could have and, and justifiably, but they died spiritually immediately and physically death was put into place. But God stepped in and tempered his judgment. He gave them mercy and he gave them grace and he gave them a promise. By the grace of God, he stepped in with a promise of a rescue. Chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, the enemy and the woman, between your offspring, your seed, your son, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In that promise... God was saying that there would come another Adam, a new Adam, who would do what Adam failed to do. Rather than sin and die, he would give life to those who call upon him. Jesus, the second Adam, born of a virgin, would be severely bruised as he hangs on the cross, but would, with, with a crushing blow, a fatal blow, crush the head of Satan. He would destroy and defeat Satan's sin, hell, and death. Jesus, the true and better Adam, will pass the test in the garden. You see what Luke is showing us this morning. The entire historical redemptive work of God rests on Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the true and better Adam. He alone is the ultimate fulfillment of what was promised thousands of years ago, before the first advent. So before we get into the genealogy, and then next week we'll see the temptation. And you need to see the big picture of why Luke dropped it where he did. And see that God, the God of Scripture, is not this, 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 this distant God of deism, but he is, he's not this unmoved, apathetic God, but sovereignly creates and sovereignly moves and relates to his creatures as he created Adam from the dust of the ground. He enters a covenant with him. But when Adam sinned, God didn't destroy the human race 
God intervened to rescue and redeem through a second Adam. Two things I want you to know right up front as we continue. Number one, you can believe the scriptures. Adam was the first human being. I don't care what they tell you in the schools or with the college or the universities. If scripture can't be trusted where it states clearly of a historical Adam, then where else can scripture not be trusted? If Adam is not historical, then Paul's reasoning about uh, the work of Christ in places like Romans 5 and, and 1 Corinthians 15 would be wrong and erroneous and incorrect. The implications of that are colossal. They're huge. If Paul believes that the representative work of Christ parallels the representative work of Adam, but Adam is not real, then how is it possible for the work of Christ to matter anything to us or count anything for us? To deny the heuristic, heuristic, too many words I'm saying today, right? The history of Adam means Paul is wrong, Genesis is wrong, Chronicles is wrong, Luke is wrong, Acts is wrong, John is wrong. They're all wrong. Family, Scripture is our authority. We are not Scripture's authority. There is a difference. You could trust Adam was a real man. Second, Christ's obedience is the only answer to Adam's disobedience. Okay? Adam acted representatively as a covenant head. Jesus similarly acts as our covenant head, which means his actions are counted to others vicariously, those who trusted him. That's what the table is really all about. The communion table, we'll go to it in a little while. You may say, you know, and I hear this, I don't like the idea, and I don't think it's right. We play God. I don't think it's right. I don't like the idea that Adam's rebellion has been passed on to me. Okay? His actions, his guilt, what he did in rebellion implicates me is now mine. The family, every single time that you have come up, whether in this church or any other church, and came to this communion table and took up the bread and drank of the cup, you're saying the same thing. That the perfect life of Jesus, his atoning work on the cross, has been imputed to you by faith. That his actions, his sinless life, his righteousness, his wrath-absorbing sacrifice is now yours. The question is, who's the head? Are you under Adam, sin, brokenness, rebellion, or under Jesus, righteousness, cleansing, forgiveness of sins? That's it. Look again. Romans continues. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to what? Condemnation of all men. Can't get any more clear than that. So one act of righteousness, that's the perfect life of Jesus, atoning work of Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For, by, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so by one man's obedience, the many will be made what? Righteous. And the one that lived that perfect life, who obeyed the Father perfectly, who, 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 who won the battle against 
Satan, who, who did not fall into temptation and sin, died an atoning death on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, the true and the better Adam. So if we get to the genealogy, we see how important it is for the background. We see, we see this family background was, was absolutely necessary because Luke has been pointing to the sonship of Christ, this relationship between father and son, and that he is the true and the better Adam. It's one of the main reasons we have this genealogy. Not only does it point to the promise fulfillment, but also to the full humanity of Jesus. Okay, that, that's, the, that's important. Like I said, Matthew starts with, with uh, the beginning of his gospel. Luke starts, look what it says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, the son, when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age. 30 years. About, the, about generally the age in which men, the Jewish men, entered uh, public life. Now, let me just say a couple things quickly about the genealogy. If you guys do any study, I know some of you love to study your Bible. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Praise God. We should all be studying our scriptures together. But if you look at Matthew and you put Matthew and Luke together, you'll see some differences. Not only one starts from the present, goes to the past, one goes from the past to the present. You'll see some differences. You put them side by side. Okay? Um, Matthew, again, lists, stresses the... The, the place of Jesus' birth within the Jewish people, the covenant promises being made. Luke, more broader, uh, traces Jesus all the way back to Adam, showing he's the, the head of the human race. But when you put them side by side, you'll see there's some names that are different as well, especially names from Joseph, Jesus' uh, uh, stepfather, to King David. Okay, even though one goes from top to bottom, one goes bottom to top. If you put those two together, from, from Jesus to Joseph down to David, you'll see there are a lot of names that are different, okay? I'll tell you that straight up. Um, there, there, are, there are several reasons. I'm just going to give you two of them of why that is the case, all right? Uh, just a couple of them. And then I'll, I'll tell you where I land. It's not that really important, but Matthew writing to a Jewish people is writing the genealogy from, from Abraham down, pointing to the line that takes him straight to King David. Okay, he's writing to a Jewish audience, proving that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of the Jewish people. And he's writing, uh, giving the genealogy of Joseph, the legal father, following it straight down as if the, the, the lineage of King David was still on today, within that day. And Joseph, right down to King David, the heir of the kingdom. Okay, some people say that what's going on and the different names is because that Luke is doing it from Mary's perspective from the genealogy of Mary. Um, Luke has given us the genealogy of Mary. Mary, like Joseph, came from the tribe of Judah, can be traced back to Abraham and King David, and that's why you have two separate, different genealogies from Jesus down to David. One was from Mary, one is from, uh, um, actually, Joseph. Okay, so that's what some people say. If you look at the Bible, and you just read your, your it's, it's, it, we really don't know. What's interesting, though, if you read, and I'm just putting this out there just so you know, guys, community groups, you study in your community groups. Matthew and Luke have a different father for Joseph. In, Luke, in Matthew, it says that Joseph, Mary's husband, his father was Jacob. Luke says his father was Heli. Like, all right, well, how do you have two fathers? Now, this ain't 2023, so that's not what we're saying. This is 2,000 years ago. Okay? 
Some, and there, there are reasons for that. I'm not going to get into it a whole lot, but there's what's called a Leverite marriage. Some of you know what that is. It's when, it, when, it, when a, a widow is childless and her husband dies, she would marry his brother who was unmarried, and the first son that would be born would be named from the father who's deceased. That could be. I also read this week that Heli, even though it says it's Joseph's father in one, and Jacob was the, the actual natural father, some, people, some commentators say that Mary, uh, uh, Joseph may have had no, bro- uh, Mary may have no brothers, and um, Heli, when they did the marriage, could actually adopt them as a son. So that we don't know exactly. But one thing we know for sure, one thing we know for sure, here's the bottom line. Luke is showing us that Jesus comes from the lineage and he's not some demagogue like the Greek and Roman mythology, right? He goes back to Abraham and to David to show he's a, he, he, is, he is from the messianic line. He goes back to Adam, bringing out his kinship with not only Israel, but the whole human race. And he's trying to show us that Jesus lived a life among us. There's a genealogy that's involved. And let me tell you why that's so In fact, let me illustrate to you why the genealogy is so important when it comes to the gospel. Some of you know we uh, here at King's Chapel have uh, one of our gospel, global gospel partners uh, is in Wycliffe Bible Translator. She was here not that long ago. And she's talking about the way they do things at the Wycliffe Bible Translation. They're translating Bible uh, into different languages. And she's in Papua New Guinea. Okay? Well, there's a story years ago that somebody in New Guinea uh, was translating the New Testament into a culture, into a, a tribal language. And the person went to, what they do is they, they tra- she told us this actually. What they'll do is they'll take you and they'll train you for two years in the language of the culture of that tribe. They'll train you for two years. And then they send you back into the, the land, into the tribe, into the people. And they will actually help you translate because who knows better. Someone's been trained outside in a classroom for two years or someone actually in the tribe with the people translating the Bible. Well, obviously that's better. So after two years, this translator went back into the, into the culture, into the tribe, to translate the New Testament. And he said, you know what? Let's do Matthew. Now, we're talking about a tribe, not Christians. It's just, we're going to, and they do that because as they're translating it, they're able to what? Share the gospel, right? He opens up his, his, his Bible, getting ready to, to, to start the New Testament. And what does he come to in Matthew chapter 1? Genealogy. All right, so you think that put you to sleep. Can you imagine? All right, he said, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it to these people. We just got here. Uh, let's start with chapter two. So he starts with chapter two, and he goes through the entire book of Matthew, chapter two, all the way through chapter 28. No one's coming to faith. No one's coming to faith. They're still not believing the gospel. Even after explaining to them as they translated chapter after chapter after chapter, finally he said, well, we're done. There's only one thing left to do. Go back to chapter 1. So he opens up chapter 1, and by the time he gets to the 4th, the 5th, the 6th, begot, he begot, he begot, he fathered, he fathered, he fathered. The men around them started getting like somewhat excited. Their faces kind of lit up. It says their eyes were wide, their voices were beginning to show agitation, and they began interrupting him as they were translating this genealogy. Finally, they stopped him and said, you mean to tell us 
that this Adam, this Abraham are real people? That David, King David, was a real person? You mean these aren't just some stories you white men made up and brought here? They're real? And he says, yes, that's what I've been telling you. I've been telling you all along. I've been translating the rest of these chapters. They said, well, we believe now. We understand this. We could tell you our ancestors way back to the 50th generation by name. We could tell you about what, that, what they were, what they were like. We learned from them. We know that everything that you've been telling us now is true about this man Jesus, that he had real ancestors and that they were real people and that God had really done these things. These are not just stories. To them, the genealogy had confirmed the truthfulness of the historical account of the gospel according to Matthew. Now, we Americans may not understand that completely in our postmodern culture, but there are a lot of cultures where the power of genealogy is tangible and profound, and Luke is bearing that out in this passage. Those tribal folks in New Guinea said, we didn't know that Abraham was real, that David was real, but now we believe because of the genealogy. And Luke is giving us this genealogy of Christ in order to root the story of Jesus in concrete historical realities of what God has been doing from the very beginning. Even throughout Jesus' family line. Now, when we go to communion, there's one thing that this genealogy has in is common for everyone except Jesus. Everyone in this genealogy, genealogy are guilty of the same sins that you and I are. All these men were sinners. There are some in the genealogy that, yes, they did some great things with some great faith, but each and every one of these men in this genealogy are flawed, flawed men. Flawed as, just as we are. Consider Terah, father of Abraham, idolater. Abraham, a liar. Jacob, a cheater, a thief. Judah, consorted with prostitutes. David, a murderer and adulterer. Luke's gospel account records a long line of sinners. Adam plunged us and all of us into sin and rebellion. And Paul says that the wages of sin is death, therefore we all die. And the last words of Luke's genealogy are really important. It says, and no other genealogy ends this way, the son of Adam, the son of God, verse 38. And it brings us back to where we started this morning. And that is that Adam had a unique relationship with God, created out of the dust of the ground, supernaturally created in the Imago Dei. He was not born like the rest of us are born, but as a direct act of creation. Since he was created in God's image, he bore the image of the family likeness of God. He was God's son in that sense. True humanity. Yet catastrophically, his relationship with the Father was broken. Sin had entered the world, corrupted every single family line since his. There's only one way for Adam and his sons to be rescued. There has to be a new Adam. There has to be new humanity. There has to be someone called the Son of God to redeem the brokenness and the broken sonship of Adam. There needs to be another son. Well, the words here at the end of Luke's genealogy, genealogy are applicable to Adam. They apply to Jesus as the true divine son. He is both God 
and man. He faced temptation. He obeyed it perfectly. We'll see that next week. And therefore, he can be our redeemer. Back in Genesis 1, there was a garden. And in the garden, there were trees. And in the garden, there was trees, and there was a command. And God said, obey me about that tree, and you will live. Obey me about that tree, and you will prosper, and I will bless you, and I will be your God. But Adam disobeyed. Now there's a second Adam, and another command. Jesus Christ sent to the Father, to the cross, which is another tree. To the first Adam, he said, obey me about the tree, and I will bless you. To the second Adam, he said, obey me about the tree, and you'll be cursed. Adam failed. Jesus obeyed. He willingly goes to the cross and is crushed as he dies as our substitute. He's the only one, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the Son who was told to obey the Father, and because of your obedience, you will be crushed. A curse will come. As the band comes up, as we move towards the Lord's Supper, remember Jesus, the true and better Adam, obeyed the Father, even hanging on the cross, taking our sin, taking our shame, becoming a curse for us, Genesis, uh, Galatians tells us, that we deserve, but he is faithful to his Father. He was forsaken for you, cast out, cast off. And yet Jesus obeyed perfectly, even dying as he abandoned on the cross, as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is why when you turn to Luke chapter 22 for the Lord's Supper, it says this, Jesus speaking. And he, Jesus, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is what? The new covenant in my blood. The new head of the new covenant is Jesus. And the implication is for all those who trust him, to have forgiveness of sins, born anew, eternal life, and those under Adam remain dead, dead in sin, dead eternally, separated from God. The question is, what head are you under? Who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in Christ? He's the true and better Adam. He won the victory for you. So as the band plays and we spend some time praying, confessing, repenting, turning from sin, celebrating the Lord's Supper, let's together remember that his obedience is our reward. His work is our salvation. We come under him by faith and faith alone in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're still under Adam, I, I implore you to trust Christ today. Turn from your sins. Run to Jesus. He took the curse, died the death, and rose from the dead for you. Table is a table for all believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're not, please just sit. Enjoy the music. We'd love to talk to you. We're glad you're here. We want to talk to you about the gospel. We're going to talk about Jesus. We're going to talk about your sin, his holiness, how you can be forgiven and cleansed and washed by the blood of Jesus. We want you to come to Jesus. There's no hiding that.
This table is for believers. So as the band plays and we prepare our hearts, I will grab an element and I will come up and lead us. So grab the element and sit back in your chair and then we'll take, partake it together. Father, thank you for this truth, God, from your word. Your word is truth. And God, I, I, we, we pray that as we just think through this this, this genealogy showing us the truth of Jesus' humanity and also the greater and better Adam. Uh, God, we, we thank you for the rescue of our God, our eternal Son, the Lord Jesus, who came, died, rose, and someday will come again. So Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, God, we pray that as we break the bread, as we drink of the cup, we'll celebrate the Lord Jesus, that you will strengthen us, you will strengthen our faith, you will strengthen our trust and your goodness, your provision in Christ. And God, I pray, we pray for those who may not know you here today, that they will come to know you, they will trust Christ today. Spirit of God, draw them to the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.